Welcome to the Neurosurgeon's Journey, part of the Library of Brain and Spine Group's Medical Student Neurosurgery Training Center and a collaboration with the AANS's Young Neurosurgeons Committee. I'm your co-host, Michael Quartz. I'm currently the Senior Student Director of Education Resources for MSNTC, and shortly we'll be joined by your other co-host, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson. He is an Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the Baylor College of Medicine and is the current Chair of the YNC. We're happy to have you with us as we look deeper into the rewarding life of a neurosurgeon and explore what it takes to get there. All right. Dr. Johnson, how are you doing today? Doing great. How are you? Doing great. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great to be back. Our guest for today is Monica Mureb. Uh, she's from Westchester, New York. Uh, she completed her medical school at New York Institute of Technology and did a year of research during medical school at NYU. She's now a first-year neurosurgery resident at Westchester Medical Center and New York Medical College and is currently interested in an endovascular career. I feel like we've had a lot of people that are interested in endovascular lately. Uh, Monica, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you on. So our topic today is uh, part of our resident application perspective series, um, talking about uh, what students without home programs should be cognizant of as they go through the neurosurgery application process and the unique challenges of, of what that looks like. And, and we're happy to have you on. You have a fresh and unique perspective uh, just matching as well as going through the process recently and, and having a lot of good thoughts on that. So we're, we're happy to have you on and we're, we're excited to have your expertise in this conversation. And yeah, Dr. Johnson, do you have any thoughts on that? I know certainly from the YNC perspective, you, um, you operate in circles with a lot of different physicians and students. And I don't know if you had any initial thoughts about uh, the topic for today. Yeah, I think maybe the place to start is just for listeners that may not quite understand why this is an important topic is that, um, and I'm happy to have either Michael or Monica jump in anytime, but essentially the problem for those who are, are not familiar with it, with trying to match a neurosurgery, if you're, don't have, if you're not at a medical school that has a neurosurgery training program, is that you're a bit of a disadvantage um, compared to students who have a training program at their institution because much of neurosurgery is related to exposure to neurosurgeons who know other neurosurgeons as well as you're much more likely to match at your own program uh, assuming you guys like each other um, you kind of have an in, inside track into obtaining a position at your own program now people that are at medical schools that don't have programs so um, I, I don't remember exactly the number of medical schools in the country, but I know there's like just over a hundred medical student neurosurgery or neurosurgery training programs at medical schools, right? So I would imagine there's like 150 medical schools plus, and there's like a hundred or ish medical you know, neurosurgery. There's 112 programs. programs. Yeah, something like that. So I imagine the number of medical schools is much higher than that yeah. uh, around the country. So there's this group who is interested in neurosurgery, but A, they have a hard time finding exposure to it if they are interested to it. And B, it's a bit of a challenge to match into neurosurgery um, without the sort of making the, making the connections of well-known, you know, for lack of a better word, well-connected neurosurgeons that can kind of pr propel them to match saying this is a good person to everyone else in the country via letters of recommendation, et cetera. Um, furthermore, um, you know, one of the keys to matching statistically is to have, you know, a significant amount of research and EFS research is in, is in neurosurgery is an advantage as well. I think, although a minor one, it is an advantage 
Um, so if you don't have a home program at your institution, you may not have exposure to research um, opportunities that will help your CV. So those are kind of the background for those listening who may not be familiar with why we're talking about this, of, 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 of this subgroup of people that are interested in neurosurgery that don't have a home program and, 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 um, and what strategies you can use to, to kind of get around some of those limitations. Yeah. As, as always, you eloquently describe why the topic is important. And I think for Monica and I, um, I, I also come from a medical school that doesn't have a pro home program. So um, this is close to home <laughs> for me. So Monica, just to, to start out uh, from your perspective, you know, I think I described your academic career. I summarized it in the last, for the last, you know, eight years or so, but why don't you go beyond that? Why, why are you interested in neurosurgery? Tell us a little bit about your story. And Sure. Well, as you can tell from my history, I'm a New Yorker through and through. Um, and part of the reason I've stayed in New York my whole life is because so much of my support system has been here. Not only my family, but the people who have supported my career. Um, my interest in neurosurgery started in college, I'd say. My neighbor growing up, uh, is a neurosurgeon and you know my dad was just kind of hanging outside on the block one day and he was walking by and my dad had said like oh you know Monica studying neuroscience like maybe she'll become a, maybe she'll become a brain surgeon one day and then my neighbor said yeah just have her come spend the summer with me so I spent the summer shadowing this neurosurgeon and he mostly did um, spine surgery a lot of like a lot under the microscope which was really cool to see and I saw one craniotomy the entire summer. And I think from that moment on, I thought like, oh, I could actually, I could definitely do this. And I love neuroscience and I love like the very microscopic aspects of how the nervous system works and how that turns into behavior. But once I got into medical school, I realized that I also am really interested in the pathology of it all and being in the operating room, especially as a third year medical student. Um, I did a one year a one, excuse me, a one week rotation in neurosurgery on my like general surgery rotation. And that was the best week of the whole year. I just felt, I felt very much at home working alongside the PAs and the neurosurgeons. Um, and I just felt like every day brought something new and it felt exciting and extremely dynamic and challenging. And um, so I think my interest in neurosurgery really came as a culmination of that early exposure and just finding people who, who told me that, you know, you can do this and you just have to put yourself out there and go for it and at least just try. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's really profound. And I think it highlights um, kind of the, um, whether you have a home program or not, you still have to, still have to go out and find it um, and, and, you know, kind of take the risk to see if that's something that you'd want to do. Um, and so I, I guess, you know, as, as someone that matched into neurosurgery without a home program, <clears throat> what are just kind of your, your general thoughts? You know, I think for a lot of students who are in this position, they just don't really know where to start. So I think before I started figuring out, you know, what was missing from my application or what was missing from my experience, I, I first thought of like, well, if I did have a home program, what would I need? And of course, that would be an entire department. But it's also the years of 
of research, as Dr. Johnson said, is really important and building that network and all that support that you need in order to get to, to even really be recognized as this is a really strong applicant and you should give him or her a chance. So the first thing was sort of just to create that atmosphere for myself. And within that, that one week of neurosurgery elective, I just, by the end of it, I, the, the neurosurgeon and I just sat down with each other and I said, listen, this is like, this feels like exactly where I belong. And the one piece of advice that I got during that week that I think has really stuck with me is it didn't even come from a nurse surgeon. It came from a, a vascular surgeon. And she said, if you can't imagine yourself doing anything else, then you have to do that thing. You know, like you're not, you're not really given a choice because you can either, well, of course you're given a choice, but you can either choose to have the lifestyle and the job that you think you want and be unhappy the entire time or work really hard and have a really fulfilling job and absolutely love what you do. But, you know, it's exhausting work. It's very intimidating. But as soon as she told me that, I just felt like, you know, I really can't imagine myself doing anything else. And so I kind of just went full force into creating all of the resources I felt like I needed to succeed. And so within that week, I, when I sat down with the nurse surgeon, I said, you know, this is, this is what I see myself doing. And he agreed. And that having that sort of validation was a really big first step where I felt like, um, well, here's, here's one person who will support me. And then I, so I was at NYU in Brooklyn and um, they had just acquired that hospital and um, the nurse surgeon I was with said, you know, why don't you go over to Tisch and work with the department over there? And they're always, you know, they have, they're really productive and um, there's always work to do and there's always an opportunity. So plus you like get to stay home and be next to your family and all that. So I said, sure. And then I sent a few emails and luckily they, everyone had responded to me and they really, I think part of it is, is seeking the opportunity, but also I think the other, I def, absolutely think that luck is part of it too, because there had been an opportunity there for me to take. So um, I just felt like kind of all the pieces were falling together and that everything was working out in my favor. And I really, I had to pursue it. So this was between, this was for your research year between third and fourth year. Is that what you're referring to? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, uh, you know, for me, when I, some uh, connections with the department at University of Colorado, um, but I still had to make that, take that step and, uh, you know, build a relationship with the folks in the department and ultimately out of thin air in some ways. And so was there an element of like cold calling or anything like that? Or was it more just like you building relationships with the circle that you were in? and then taking advantage of those opportunities as they, as they arose. I would say it's more of, I would say it's more of the latter. Mm. Yeah, it definitely took some initiative on my part, but I don't think I would have felt confident taking that initiative if I didn't have the support from those one or two neurosurgeons, you know? Yeah. Um, And to have them back me up, even if they had only known me for a brief period of time, I'd like, that plus the 
eagerness that I probably showed in my interview with my mentors, I think that made them more agreeable to taking me on for the year. And I had a, I mean, I had a summer experience. The opportunity was definitely there, but my job or my responsibilities throughout the year, really, they evolved throughout the year. So I was picking up more opportunities and more projects um, as the year went along. And I had a, I had a good mixture of clinic time and research time, which just made my experience so much more valuable and comprehensive. And I felt like I had so much more to talk about, not only in my interviews, but even to this day when I encounter a patient and I recall previous patients and previous ways of managing them and their care. And it's just my, my scope and my understanding of of what we can do for a patient is much more broadened because of that experience. So it's definitely everything I'm learning, everything I learned in that year, I've been carrying for two to three years after. It definitely doesn't cross any boundaries to ask people, in my opinion. I mean, most neurosurgeons, especially in their academics, part of their interest in their career is helping develop the, the future of the field, you know, help develop the people that will become the future of the field, so to speak. So I think it's always reasonable to ask and reach out and say, hey, is there opportunities to shadow or visit your institution? It, it varies institution to institution what the rules are. Right. Um, and it may be something you have to work to set up some sort of formal rotation or something like that. But um, generally speaking, I think that's the way to go is you have to become somewhat interconnected in a, in a bit of an unconventional way with all these people rather than the standard, you know, they're at your medical school and you can kind of just go hang out with the residents and attend mm-hmm. grand rounds whenever you want to kind of have some exposure to these people. So, um, I mean, whatever unconventional-ish ways you can think of doing it or conventional, you know, spending some time with them um, earlier in your in your medical school and you may have some, some time to do that, um, you know, but all that just is going to be related to reaching out to these people and seeing if there's any way you can think of to interact with them more than you normally would. I mean, in my mind, you, you know, the meetings are pretty interesting ways to do it, but it's very superficial because you don't get to work with them. So like you guys are saying, I don't know, even asking someone on social media, Hey, do you have any projects laying around that you need someone to work on? I mean, right. any, any of these types of things. And then you, all of a sudden you kind of establish some sort of relationship because you got to talk about that project and, and this kind of thing. I mean, I think all of these things are, are, are quite viable ways to interact. Um, and and you, I think from a person that doesn't have the home program, you just have to think of these types of things. Definitely leverage anyone at your medical school that does neurosurgery and their connections to introduce you to people. And, you know, I mean, to the best that you can, if, if you don't have a department, you probably still have neurosurgeons that work at the hospital where your medical school is and, and leverage those people to get you in contact with people they know. And, and, and it's going to it have to be a game of creativity though. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. I, I was told one time by a good mentor of mine back when I was in like medical school, Scott Sangster, if you're out there, I'm going to send you a shout out. Um, but he, he said that it's, it's not even, it's, you know, the, the saying is it's not what you know, it's who you know, but he goes one further and it's, it's who knows you. Mm-hmm. And that is more important than ever, I think in neurosurgery. And one thing that I've really grasped on through my, my short amount of time doing this is um, that no connection should be left unturned. I mean, even if it's a minor connection that is 
you would think is not going to get you anywhere. And they know someone that might know someone who could potentially know someone down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, you should, you should definitely try to foster that and get that fourth level connection somehow. Um, because people are, and, and there's actually research out there that I've read on and people are pretty responsive and are, are willing to help you. But I think we're just and wired to just expect to be shut down in a lot of ways. Um, one of those reasons because neurosurgery is so competitive. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I always go back to like, what is the end? So you need your letters. You need, so you need four rec, letters of rec, you know, maybe three, two of those absolutely need to be from a department chair or a, a program director. And, um, you know, you need a certain amount of publications, you know, the average for, um, 2019 and 2020 is in the 15 to 20 range. Um, and you know, you, you know, you need your board scores and all of those things. And one thing that doesn't get, so, so you got to get those at the, the bare minimum. And so I guess for Monica, you know, do you think that a research year is absolutely necessary for someone without a home program? Because I think you and I have taken the tact where, we're going to take the year and make sure that we've got everything that we need to hit those numbers. But, you know, there are people out there that, that don't take that research here and uh, where that line is for, for people trying to make that decision. I don't think it's absolutely, absolutely necessary. I would say it is if you don't feel like you're competitive enough of an applicant, if you don't have that network and if you don't have the publications to, or the experience really to vouch for your interest, then I think taking a year off to do research or research and clinical work is, there, there are many benefits to it. First being is you can spend a year deciding if this is really something that you want for yourself. And the second is you get to build the network and the connections and your CV in order to be competitive enough of an applicant to really give yourself a fair shot. Right. I think one really important thing about picking where you're going to do research is that not all research is the same. It looks the same on your CV potentially, but I think all of this discussion kind of comes back to that. This is a small field and it's who, you know, so I would heavily, heavily encourage people that are going to take a whole year of their life to do research in order to prepare to potentially match in a subspecialty to do that at a, ideally for a mentor who is a neurosurgeon and is a program director or chair or something along those lines are very close to it where not only can you um, do the actual research, but you can, you know, combine that with experience clinically, like how I mm-hmm. Monica was saying earlier. And also you would have an, an advocate that knows you very well, who's very prominent, um, who can, you know, their word really goes a long way. Um, I think all those things would be fantastic criteria to, to think about when you're looking for an, an, a research year, like you guys are describing. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't yeah. agree more. Right. And that's the one thing that doesn't come up in the data, right. Which is the, the phone calls that are happening, you know, uh, across the country. You know, you say you're interested in five to these, these five programs and yeah, I want to be at university of Colorado for instance, but you know, maybe I'm interested in a couple others and, you know, are, are folks willing to go to bat for you because you made yourself known within the department? Um, those are the things that just don't show up. And I think that's one of the, the big daunting things for students with that home programs is because they don't have that baseline for, for a, a baseline pool of resources that they can just pull from and, and just, 
shoot an email to the coordinator and be like, Hey, can I spend time in your guys's cadaver lab? You know, can I, can I just hang out with the residents and that sort of thing? Um, and so whether that's cold calling, emailing, doing it respectfully, but you know, if you feel like you don't have those resources, then finding ways to build them and, and get those resources is important. And research here is, is a good way to do that. Um, another, another good way to do that is um, on your sub eyes uh, and your interviews. And did you have any, what was your strategy from uh, your fourth year rotation standpoint in terms of, you know, how many sub eyes you felt like you needed to do, where you wanted to do them, um, that sort of thing. So I ended up doing a total of four sub eyes, which I think is a pretty healthy amount for someone um, who doesn't have a home program. And my strategy, so I had a strategy going into it. And then <laughs> as soon as the applications get sent out, um, spots fill up and deadlines approach and you realize that you still need this one more test, but you can't get the doctor's appointment. So it's just, it ends up being pretty, it gets, it gets crazy um, and kind of scattered. So I ended up applying to probably about 10 or 12. And um, like I said, I did four and three of them actually ended up being in New York, which worked out because ultimately I wanted to match in New York to be close to my family. But one thing that I think really that applicants should look out for is if you do have a really strong inter interest in um, a subspecialty, like for me as endovascular, doing a sub-eye at a place that has a really high volume of that specific subspecialty could be really great exposure because chances are that if they have really high volume, you're going to see a lot of really interesting cases. And a lot of those, um, I got asked on interviews quite a lot, you know, like what was the most interesting case that you saw at this place or that place, or what was, what procedure or operation do you remember the most? So it was interesting to be, to be in high volume places for that respect. Um, but also to, I had, feel like I had a good mix of urban hospitals versus more suburban hospitals versus hospitals that are covering, you know, like a 200 mile radius. So I felt like I had a really good mix of patient population and pathology and um, experience overall. So that, so that highlights a, a important point, which is being strategic about your, your sub eyes. And did you, did you apply that same technique or strategy towards um, doing things like conferences, like academic conferences? I mean, how, did you go to anything like that? How did you meet people in the field besides just through the research here and in, in your circles in New York? Um, I attended a few conferences. I went to both CNS and WNS the year that I took my research year. Um, one, because I had the time, but two, because I had actually submitted abstracts and had presentations there. And it definitely takes a lot of creativity and a lot of, a lot of confidence. You have to muster a lot of confidence in order to just approach someone and say, hey, I'm familiar with your work. Like, I'm really interested in what you're doing. By the way, I'm also applying this year and I'm interested in so-and-so program. Like, can you please keep an eye out for my application or can I have your can I have your email in order to touch base closer to when applications go out and during interview season? It definitely took me out of my comfort zone because I'm not 
I don't really consider myself someone very good at asking for help, but also asking for things in general. I'm very shy about that. So um, it took a lot for me to really put myself out there and sort of advocate for myself. Um, but having that sort of having all the support system and all of my advocates back in New York to vouch for me just gave me that much more confidence and made me feel like, well, I have a whole, I have a whole network of neurosurgeons that are saying that I'm worth giving a shot to. So if you're not going to listen to me, you can at least listen to them. Yeah, I'm, I'm copying down what you just said right now. So when I'm in that position, I can just look down and read it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Dr. Johnson, do you think I've heard differing things on whether or not events like conferences or that sort of thing are important? I think that there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot to traveling and there's obviously a cost involved and, and that sort of thing. I mean, do you think that those things are worth students? I mean, really for anyone, but certainly for students without home programs. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think any, is it the crucial piece of your, of your application? No. Um, but I think the, all these things, all the exposures that you have, even if they're small and brief, um, are data points to some degree. You just never know, like the person you meet that you may see back around again, uh, you know, in an interview later. And they remember you. Oh, yeah, I remember that person. It just makes you more familiar to them than, you know, just someone they've never met before. So it may not seem like a huge deal to stand in a group of people and be introduced to a few other attendings or residents of the programs. But uh, and it may never be it may never amount to anything. But but I think all these data points are, are you know, kind of add up over time. I know I've seen people at meetings who have gone on to see again interviews and things like that and not that i really spoke to them in any kind of linked or was impressed by them but just i was like oh yeah i recognize you from the meeting it kind of it kind of gives you the sense that they're a little bit part of the part of the club or you know part of the field <laughs> even if they're not yet you know and so and then and then other things may be more meaningful i mean maybe you end up at a dinner with a group of people and some of them are you know you know in either residents or attendings and programs and this happens all the time at courses and dinners after courses so no, I think it's, I can't tell you it's extraordinarily critical, but I do think that it, you know, any, anytime you, anytime you have this exposure and to, to the field and you're around everyone, then I think it's a, it's a net positive as long as you're, you know, behaving appropriately and that kind of thing. Right. Um, I, now, whether it's worth the cost or not, I, I, it's hard to say, Right. Um, but, but, but I do think in general that it's in, anytime you're around these people, it's a good idea. The people that are already in the field, either training or, or as attendings. Right. Right. So um, I kind of want to switch gears just a little bit. And so Monica, not only are you, you don't have a home program, but you're also a DO student. And I'm curious if there's anything that you want to talk about with that specifically. Um, there are so many, so few DOs that match into to neurosurgery. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that, whether or not it you know, came up on interviews or anything that you want to say to that end for, for students who may be in that boat. It definitely came up on interviews. I would say, you know, it's it was probably the most common question. I very often found myself being the only DO in the room, not only as an applicant, but also like with regards to the attending interviewing me or the residents interviewing me. And I think at first it was intimidating, but over time I realized that I think there's there's definitely a stigma about DO versus MD, but if there's anything I've learned in my research here and going through interviews and meeting all these people is that I think as a medical student, especially as one who 
wants to pursue neurosurgery, you're going to be a hard worker. And at the end of the day, that if you took away my letters and took away everyone else's letters and just compared our CVs or compared how much we care about neurosurgery and how passionate we are, we really are very similar. So I think for me, it took a lot to realize that even though I'm, there's a stigma and I'm told that I'm different, I didn't really feel like I was any different. I felt, I felt like I deserved to be there as much as anyone else and sort of getting that confidence and portraying that in the interviews, I think took away some of that, took away some of that stigma. I mean, granted there, there were interviews where I got very rude comments about being a DO, almost insults. And then there were others where they're generally interested in, you know, what's different between a DO and NMD and how has that affected your care for patients? And so I got, I mean, I got the whole range, but you kind of just take it as it comes. And if throughout, throughout just the conversation between three of us, I realized that the one thing that keeps popping in my head is if you don't ask, the answer is always going to be no. So you always have to give yourself the opportunity to to succeed. And if you get, if you, if the answer is no, you can at least say that you asked, but otherwise you really just have to go for it. And that's the, whether you're DO and MD, that's the best advice that I can give any medical student. And I would extend that to life. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think that's a perfectly said, I, I really do think if you want something that you just can't be in the mindset, you're going to sit back and let it happen for you. It has to be, it has to be an active process, not in an obnoxious way, but just an act of working towards it as smartly and as like in a methodical way as you possibly can, you know, just kind of continuously looking for doors to open doors to open. And then when it opens, mm-hmm. you go through it, you know? So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Bust down those doors. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, if people say if people say no like i don't have an opportunity you can't be like come on let me right. are you kidding me but you know when someone's like hey yeah no we have an opportunity for whatever and, and if you think that's a really good advancement for you then go and then like you said you get to know the right people and you know you, you just have to you, but you can't just be expecting someone to call you and right. invite right. you to some amazing some amazing uh opportunity right. right you definitely have to be strategic about it and it doesn't happen overnight and I think that everyone other than patients will get you so far, <laughs> especially as a medical student. And I think just learning the balance between when to go and when to hold back is, I mean, that's something we're all still learning. But like you said, once the door opens, you have to go through it. Right. You started your career in the COVID era. Do you have any thoughts about what students without home programs can be doing, you know, in this virtual environment for people who are applying this year? Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I think that it's very overwhelming for hospitals to take care of their own faculty and residents during this time. And I think that a lot of people, um, I mean, I've seen it seen it in my own co-residents, there definitely is a different type of mental and emotional burnout as a result of COVID. And I think not only neurosurgery residents, but residents in other programs at New York Med, 
there that's still that burnout is still sort of lingering and there's still the stress of you know this patient's real out covid or this patient has covid and it's just very trying times for everyone in medicine right now and i think that if uh, if there's an opportunity for a medical student to take a research year then i would probably recommend that because there's so much that's unknown with the application process that waiting a year for everything to simmer down. I mean, granted, we don't know what's going to happen in a year. It could, there could be a second or third wave and it could be so much worse than, than now. But I just think that it's been such a shock for everyone that taking the time to like step back and let everything settle and then coming in and trying to, you know, be efficient and get research done and this and that, it's just going to be so much, a much more valuable use of your time because a lot of research has been on hold and um, a lot of, you know, the applications were delayed and now there's virtual interviews. So none of us, I don't really think any of us know what's, what we're getting ourselves into. Um, you know, like we have resident meetings with our chairman every couple of weeks and a recent topic of conversation has been, how are we going to recruit applicants, you know, and how are we going to interview, how are we going to interview applicants and What's the pre-interview dinner going to be like? Is it going to be Zoom? Are we going to do one? There's, there's just so much. There's so much that still needs to be figured out that I think taking a research year wouldn't be that bad of an idea. Um, people who have decided that they're going to go for it pretty much are set in stone. And I think that mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've known, I've known a couple of my colleagues who, as a result of COVID, have decided that not just neurosurgery but other ones as well. Uh, and other specialties that they've decided to do a research year. But for those that have decided that, you know what, I'm going to go for it. Do you have any thoughts about ways that those students can shine? You know, if you, if you're as a resident, you're like, Oh, I want to work with this person for the next six years. What is your, what are the things that you're going to be looking for in this virtual environment? Is there anything that students can be, can be thinking about as they go through the next couple months? Well, to your first point, I think if, if, people, if applicants are, medical students have already decided they're going to apply, they're going to go for it, then my first piece of advice is to see it through and to really put yourself out there and apply to as many programs as you can afford or want to. And in terms of what I would be looking for in an applicant, it's hard, but I think the same applies whether it's virtual or in person, like if I can hold a conversation with someone and, you know, if we can get along, I think even though it is virtual, you can still sort of catch other people's energy. So I think it's all, I don't think I'm going to know until, until it happens. <laughs> but like Monica very eloquently said is, is that you have to, if you really love it, then, then you can make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, the provision being that board scores, grades have to reflect your dedication to it. Right. Without those things, you're, you're, that's kind of the base of your of your application. And then you, have, of course, have to be a good a good re, you know medical student that looks like they'll become a good dedicated resident. And but all those right. things are aligned, then then it is doable. It's just it's just um, you know like I said, we said you have to use some creativity and think outside the box and and get all get all the things you need to have in a competitive application. But it's doable. Yeah. Persistence and patience can get you very far. I think, especially yeah. in the application process. It's a good way to end. Our guest has been Monica Mureb. Monica, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Monica. Thanks, Michael. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, 
please subscribe, follow, and leave a comment in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio content. Make sure to follow MSNTC and the YNC on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our webpage at neurosurgerytraining.org slash TNJ, where you can find other episodes and links and resources related to today's conversation. Be sure to check out the YNC's webinar series and visit their webpage on AANS.org. If you have comments or ideas for episodes or would like to join us to talk about anything neurosurgery related, our email address is tnjpodcast at neurosurgerytraining.org. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, I'd like to thank Matt Rosenthal, one of our fantastic MSNTC volunteers, for helping with the editing and processing, and also thank all the fabulous people involved in this project. Have a great day, and we look forward to next time.